This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now we come to the Counter-Reformation. There were a number of attempts. Uh, These are consciously Uh, conscious efforts in response to Luther and the Reformation. And one of the most interesting uh, points of the Counter-Reformation is the Colloquy of Regensburg, or sometimes in some books they call it the Colloquy of Ratisbon, depending on, uh, give it a Latin or a German sort of name, but the Colloquy of Regensburg, 1541. What's what's so interesting about this is that Luther even was willing to support uh, this this meeting, but it was uh, a a sort of last last ditch effort on the part of the Lutherans and the Catholics to find some sort of agreement. It was was it was it possible for them to to uh, get back together? Rome sent its number one reform-minded cardinal with a group of people with him. Contarini had with him, remember Johann Eck, the guy who debated with Luther? (laughs) And a couple other people named Groper and Flug. Uh, They sent these folk to come and talk to representatives from the, from the uh, Lutheran branch, Melanchthon, Bootser, and a guy named Pistorius. Uh, they met, and amazingly enough, they reached agreement on the doctrine of justification. What they did is they settled on what was, con- what was really a compromise sort of solution, called double justification. Double justification. Let me tell you what that means. Melanchthon, the Lutheran, and Contarini, the Catholic, reached agreement on justification. They both settled on a doctrine called double justification. Two basic components to this doctrine on which the Lutheran and Melanchthon agreed with the Catholic Contarini. First, the justification means the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer in a forensic sense. A legal imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Just like I read earlier about what Contarini believed, that is included in this document. And Contarini agrees with Melanchthon. But the first thing is, is that they affirm the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer in a forensic legal sense. 
Contarini accepts that on behalf of Rome. This is, this is standard Lutheran kind of language. But they also agreed that there is an inherent righteousness that is infused into the believer, but Contarini is willing to say that this inherent righteousness that is infused into the believer is based on the forensic imputation of Christ's righteousness. One of the key features here is that the inherent righteousness is based upon the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to the believer. The document is very clear to say that good works do not win justification, although good works necessarily follow. Clearly, the, uh, the, the doctrine of justification, according to this document, contains both the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the inherent righteousness of the believer. So it is very much a compromise kind of solution. But this is something that uh, Rome had not been willing to do before, nor had, had, had the Lutherans. Uh, the two groups met from April 27 to May 22nd in 1541. Uh, Charles V was the, the mover and shaker behind this meeting at Regensburg. Uh, he had been trying for some years, Charles V had, to get a general church council to come and to give a, a, a decision about the Protestants. I mean, he was the emperor of a whole nation, the Holy Roman Empire, of a bunch of Protestants. And a, and a church council, he thought, would help him resolve the problem. Uh, and so he pushed for it. But the popes were very reticent for a general church council. And part of the problem was they feared a resurgence of what was called conciliarism. That is, that a church council might assert that it had authority over the pope. And the pope did not want to take any chance of a resurgent conciliarism, that is that councils, that church councils have at least equal or higher authority than the Pope. That had happened before and it ended up with two and three Popes as a result. So for about 15 or 20 years, all the Popes sort of said, yeah, yeah, we need a church council and then did nothing about it because they feared that there would be this resurgence of conciliarism. But finally, uh, it was pretty clear that something had to happen. So Charles pushes for this, this theological dialogue. They, discuss, they discussed initially four subjects. Man before the fall, free will, the cause of sin, and original sin. Man before the fall, free will, the cause of sin, and original sin. These are the first four topics under discussion at the uh, colloquy of Regensburg. 
and they all, Catholic and Protestant, came to an agreement on how to understand these first four topics. Man before the fall, free will, the cause of sin, and original sin. Then came justification, and they reached agreement, a compromise that they called double justification. So things are moving. And it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of exciting. You can almost feel the excitement uh, as they cover the first five topics and get over the hurdle of justification. But ultimately, the colloquy of Regensburg was a failure. Because even Melanchthon, with his very conciliatory nature, and Contarini, with his desire to have agreement with the, with the Lutherans, with all that goodwill, they still could not agree on the sacraments. And so, the colloquy disbanded in failure. And ultimately, the Pope repudiated even those five points on which they agreed, as did Luther. Luther was not happy with his lieutenant having compromised the doctrine of justification by faith alone in 1541. Regensburg is, is really an interesting uh, effort. Uh, much more work needs to be done on this. Mostly Catholics have worked in this area. It's very intriguing. If anybody's looking for a doctoral dissertation, this would be a great one. Anyway, it does suggest this idea of, of the church moving to reform. And here, the reform is even touching on doctrinal matters, interestingly enough. That's mostly at the behest of Luther. Well, another major event, obviously, of the Counter-Reformation is the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563. Uh, Charles, as I mentioned earlier, had been uh, pressing for this general church council meeting. Uh, and the only thing that, fi the thing that finally persuaded the popes to grant a... Uh, a general council is the fact that Protestantism is making such headway in Europe. We're talking 1545 now, which I said was the key point, where they look like they just—they're just—it's invincible. It's spreading like wildfire across the face of Europe. And so, in the face of this growing power, uh, the Pope said, "Okay, I'll, I'll risk this re-emergent conciliarism and call for a general church council." They tried to do it in May 1537, and again in 1538. Those didn't work until 1545 at Trent. The first meeting was December 13th, 1545 at Trent, a free imperial city in northern Italy. December 13, 1545. The council met over a period of 18 years and in three phases. Three phases. Phase one went from 1545 to 1547, was called by Pope Paul III. Phase two, 1551 to 1552, called by Julius III. 
Phase 3, 10 years later, 1562 to 1563, called by Pius IV. Looking back now at Phase 1, in the years 1545 to 1547, here is the first phase is in most respects the crucial phase. Here there were two major issues discussed and pronounced upon. The first issue was the relationship or the authority of Scripture and tradition and the doctrine of justification. First, let's just a word about Scripture and tradition as articulated in the first phase of the Council of Trent. Trent affirmed unequivocally that it is not sola scriptura that has their final authority, that has final authority for Christians. They affirm that the Bible is the final authority along with tradition. Various traditions which are, in the final analysis, uh, determined by the Pope. So this, this tradition is something that's very much connected with papal authority. And one little tidbit to note here is that the Council of Trent uh, brought representatives from all parts of Christendom uh, to participate, but it was in fact dominated by Italians. Without question, the dominant uh, ethnic group that dominated at Trent were the Italians, and they for the most part were quite loyal to Rome uh, in all of this. So the first major issue dealt in phase one was the relationship with Scripture and tradition take a very anti-Protestant view. There is little doubt that this is a reaction, a counter-response to Luther and the, and the Reformation. So this is very much counter-Reformation stuff, the Trent is. The other major doctrine was justification. And they realized, in fact, one of the persons involved there said, this is the most important item the council has to deal with. That is justification. No question about it. Trent affirmed that justification was by grace through faith. No doubt about that. Justification is by grace through faith. The only thing they leave off is that little word alone. Everything hinges upon that word alone. Because that word alone permits human effort, meritorious works, to be included in justification. This is essentially a Thomistic understanding of justification. Essentially a Thomistic understanding of justification. There's the affirmation, the priority of grace. We must not misunderstand what happened at Trent. They did not say that uh, let's, let's, let's emphasize works. Let's make that the focal point. No, that did not happen at Trent. They emphasized grace, that justification uh, is a result of God's grace, and it involves faith. But they permit, by that little word alone, the idea of human merit to be included. 
they write, this is a crucial phrase, for God does not command impossibilities, but by commanding us to do what we can and to pray for what we cannot do. Therefore, no one ought to flatter himself with faith alone, thinking that by faith alone he is made an heir. So when you see see them focusing on that word alone, they're poking Luther in the chest. They're saying, we reject your view of justification. Yeah. For God does not command impossibilities, but by commanding us to do what we can, what we can do, and to pray for what we cannot do. Therefore, no one ought to flatter himself with faith alone, thinking that by faith alone he is made an heir. Uh, Rome, with its Thomistic slant on things, believed in meritorious human works. Humans can do works that oblige God, that obligate God to reward you. That's the whole idea of merit. Merit is a way of obligating God. He has to reward you. That's the idea of meritorious work. And you and I have to say it, it's in Thomas. You can't get away from that. And it's in Trent. No doubt about it. So, Trent says that grace comes first in justification, but that person person must consent to and cooperate with that grace if that grace is to be effectual. That's the bottom line. Grace comes first. Grace is emphasized. But that, but the person must consent to and cooperate with that grace if it is to be effectual. One other little note here. Uh, justification is viewed as a process at Trent. Uh, very different from the way Luther views it. As a forensic declaration. So again, there is this this very explicit counter-reform effort at Trent against Luther. Just to mention this in passing, the seven sacraments are also reaffirmed in this phase one. All seven, not just baptism and the Eucharist, but all seven. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. You don't need to know all seven of those. Just know that all seven were affirmed. Phase 2, 1551-52. Again, two major issues emerge in this year or so. What's interesting about Phase 2 is that the Lutherans were invited to come. And Melanchthon is the leader at this point because Luther is dead. Melanchthon says, I'm not coming unless you're willing to undo what you've done in Phase 1. And they said, no go. So the Protestants, although invited, refused the invitation as being fruitless. A couple of key issues that were reaffirmed in contrast, again, to the Protestants, transubstantiation. Reaffirmed along with the fact 
or with the assertion that Christ's sacrifice is repeated every time the Eucharist is celebrated. The repeat of Christ's sacrifice every time the Eucharist is celebrated. So it affirms transubstantiation and the repeated sacrifice of Christ. The second major issue, they look internally at Trent. Trent is not simply a reaction against the Protestants, but it, it's that and more. There is a clear effort to take into consideration all the things that have been raised, the issues that have been raised in the Catholic Reformation, more reforms primarily, and they tried to incorporate those. There was a real effort at Trent to reform the abuses that were obvious to all. A couple of things just to mention in passing here. Again, just like the Catholic reformers, bishops must reside in their diocese. No more this absenteeism, as it was called. Bishops must reside in their diocese, says Council of Trent. Second, this was church law. This is they—they're obligated. They have to do this. Secondly, bishops have to preach regularly. Now, this is very much a reaction to uh, Protestants who put so much emphasis on preaching the word. Third, priests cannot have concubines. Now, that's a reaffirmation of, of a rule that had always been in existence, but there had been so many exceptions that they needed, felt a need to reaffirm that. And then again, education. The fourth thing is education. Uh, too, mu too much illiteracy out there. We need to educate our clergy. Bishops must reside in their diocese, number one. Number two, bishops must preach regularly. Number three, priests are not to have concubines. And number four, education. Phase three is sort of mopping up operations. A whole assortment of issues are looked at. Again, the sacraments are looked at again. The doctrine of purgatory is reaffirmed, uh, for example. Other reforms are mentioned in the for the clergy. So sacraments again, purgatory, reform. Marriage is uh, also uh, not permitted for priests. So with the conclusion of phase three, 1562-1563 at Trent, all hope of resolving the breach in Christendom was lost. Absolutely and utterly lost. Frankly, that hope had long passed. Uh, I would see uh, the last ditch effort as occurring in 1541 at Regensburg. That's probably when that failed, hope was lost. And Trent is simply... Uh, going about the business of saying this is where we are in contrast to you. There's no hope of reconciliation, but this is where we stand. And we stand in contrast to you at this, 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 and this point. In phase three, there was no new development. They, they just covered everything. This is, this, is a, this is a mopping up phase by and large. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to go into details on this. I'm just trying to give you a, a broad sweep here. Uh, let me look at another major component of the, of the Counter-Reformation, namely the Jesuits. If Trent provided theological definition to the Counter-Reformation as opposed to the Catholic Reformation, the Jesuits provided the stormtroopers. The Jesuits, as a Catholic friend of mine says, were the shock troops of the Counter-Reformation. These are the guys who stopped the Protestant advance. The, the, the Jesuits were, they were the foot soldiers. They were the guys who went out there and did battle on the front lines with Protestants. They were militant. They were strong. They were well-educated. Uh, it was on their backs that the Counter-Reformation uh, was, was moved and was, was went out and was generally successful. So if you talk about the Counter-Reformation, you've got to talk about the Jesuits at least a little bit. The Jesuits were founded by Ignatius Loyola, dates 1490, somewhere around there, to 1556. Who was Ignatius? Well, he was born to an aristocratic family in Spain. Uh, he grew up always wanting to be a soldier. He writes of himself, up to the age of 26, I was a man given to the vanities of the world, and my chief delight was in the martial exercises with a great desire to gain honor. Uh, Loyola was a soldier, and he wanted to be a noble kind of soldier. Uh, and so he was out fighting a war in 1521 when a cannonball hit him in the leg and shattered his leg. He was then put into hospital for an extended period of convalescence. In fact, the leg problem obviously broke his leg and it was improperly set. And so they had to break it again and reset it. It's enough to cause you to have a spiritual conversion, isn't it? Well, he did. <laughs> he had a conversion of sorts, a spiritual experience uh, in the hospital. Uh, through all of this pain. And see, that's, this is the value of suffering in this life, you see. Uh, it causes you to rethink where you are. I, 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 I teach this a lot. People don't like it. But during this, this uh, period of convalescence, he began to think and to read. Think and read. He began to think about the meaning of his life. What meaning is there in just being a good soldier? You kill people, you get killed. Is that all there is to life? He began reading biographies of great saints of the past. And that inspired him. He also read uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And so, while he was convalescing in about 1522, uh, he uh, had a spiritual experience. Had visions, even. And he decided to dedicate his life to the service of God and the church. In other words, he decided to become a different kind of soldier. A soldier for Christ. 
Now, I, I use that language very deliberately. And I've talked about the Jesuits as stormtroopers. That is because the man who founded them organized them and encouraged them in a very militaristic kind of way, a spiritual militancy. And that is, there's this, there's this, this rigid determination among the Jesuits that, that is very soldierly. You, you know, he says, take that hill and they're going to take it. They're, they're trained that way and will not be stopped by anything. And it's, it's due in large part to this, this, this military kind of orientation of Loyola that he instilled into the Jesuits that made them so terribly uh, successful. Uh, 1523, he made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which is something when you have a spiritual experience you, you need to do. Came back, got an MA at the University of Paris. He thought he needed some education. One of the great ironies of history, one of the great interesting tidbits of history is that while Calvin was at the University of Paris, so was the founder of the Jesuits. And one wonders... Did the Spaniard Loyola ever meet the Frenchman Calvin? Who knows? We have no record if they did. But they do. Their, their, their times at Paris overlapped. Well, while he was recovering, he began writing down some of his thoughts. And while he was at Paris, he also began to compile some, some ideas and people began to come to Loyola. They noticed there's something different about him. Is there's a real dedication to Loyola. And that's when he put together his famous book called The Spiritual Exercises. It is a very interesting book. One scholar says of it, it has all the literary excellence of a cookbook. In other words, it's very practical. It's straightforward. It doesn't it's it's militaristic. The spiritual exercises set forth a series of daily reflections and prayers. And at every stage, these exercises employ the imagination. The imagination is crucial to the spiritual exercises. For example, the reader is told, don't think about the birth of Christ in the abstract. Think about the birth of Christ like this. Quote, Form a mental image of the scene and see in your imagination the road from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Consider its length and breadth and whether it is level or winding through the valleys over the hills. He's saying use your imagination and get into the event, the biblical event. His famous passage is how he talks about hell. He's got, he's, he and Jonathan Edwards might have seen eye to eye here. Loyola says, See in your imagination the great fires. Hear the wailing, screaming cries and blasphemies. Smell the smoke, the brimstone, the corruption, and the rottenness. With your sense of touch, feel the flames as they surround and burn souls. Use your imagination. Don't talk about hell in the abstract. Experience it through your imagination. 
Well, Ignatius gained a number of followers and they resolved themselves that they would go to Jerusalem first, but they couldn't get there because of a war. And so they said, failing going to Jerusalem, we will devote ourselves to the Pope and we will do whatever he says. And so the group decided that they would find a way to serve the Pope. And in 1540, Pope Paul III granted the approval of a new religious order called the Order the Society of Jesus. It was a new order based on the spiritual exercises and Loyola was the general of the order. One of the distinctive sort of militaristic kinds of features of the Jesuits and of this new order is that it took an absolutely blind vow to obey the Pope no matter what. Uh, again, you sort of have this military flavor. Obey the commander-in-chief. Uh, and don't ask questions. Just do it. To coin a contemporary phrase. But the three main uh, focal areas, focal points of the Jesuits was one, education. They uh, gradually gained dominance in many of the educational institutions throughout Catholic Europe. But still today, the Jesuits in Catholicism are at the, at the top of the heap when it comes to education. The second and perhaps most important uh, focal point was they wanted to fight heresy. These guys, their, their mandate was to uphold the authority of the Pope and to go out and to destroy all those who oppose the authority of the Pope. They were vigilant. Uh, they saw themselves in, in soldier-like terms. And a part of all of that, a third focal point, is foreign missions. The Jesuits, if you look at the New World, the founding of the New World, uh, the exploration in the Age of Discovery, uh, the 16th century, late 16th century, 17th century, Jesuits are at the forefront of Roman Catholic missions. Uh, just mentioned uh, just mentioned Franks, Francis Xavier you know that name Xavier is a great uh, Jesuit missionary to China who was very active in converting I mean there's this sort of this nominal Christianity to which they were often converted and there's this idea that Xavier in particular embodied, and that is you accommodate yourself to the culture. Uh, we think that contextualization is something new. It ain't so. Uh, Xavier was very much a proponent of a, of a sort of contextualism. Uh, and particularly in China, he would, for example, wear uh, Chinese clothing to make himself more acceptable to. Further, uh, many of the Jesuits, and this is sort of 
inherent in the Jesuit movement is to accommodate where you can the cultural uh, ideas of the group. Uh, you know, they, they, they always wanted to maintain Roman Catholic theology, but in every possible other way, accommodate yourself to the culture. Uh, the Jesuits not only made inroads in terms of missions, but they very much... Remember I said in 1545, Protestants were on the move. After 1560, they, they, things slowed down in terms of, of expansion. Well, one of the reasons is because the Jesuits were pushing the, pushing the, the Protestants back. Uh, Jesuits began to make inroads in Germany, in Luther's Germany, in the latter part of the 16th century. They gained some parts of the Netherlands back. They gained Poland. So what you have here is you have the Protestants pressing forward and now with the Counter-Reformation coming back and, and led by the Jesuits are pushing back, pushing back, pushing way back kind of stuff. Whatever it takes, take the hill. And that's this, that's this, this Loyola militaristic kind of attitude. There is no doubt that the Jesuits were the storm troopers of the Counter-Reformation. Uh, Elizabeth I of England got so frustrated with Jesuits sneaking into England and disrupting the religious status quo that she absolutely outlawed, outlawed all Jesuits from England. Uh, and there is still, even today, there is a sort of uh, a cultural uh, animosity toward Catholics in England. It's just beneath the surface, but it's, it's kind of a cultural bias. Uh, just like you would find, for example, uh, in many parts of the states, you'll have biases against blacks or biases against Jews. Cultural things. They're not. It's not. It's not malicious in the sense that. Uh, Groups simply hate an individual because of that, but it's it's a broader thing. It's it's more insidious because it just it just blankets entire groups, and you find that as well uh, in, among among uh, the Jesuits and this feeling about Catholics. And that's prompted in large part because these Jesuits were just so insistent they continue to sneak into England and to disrupt the status quo. And so Elizabeth had this really strong reaction to the Jesuits in particular. And she was not an anti-Catholic. She was just anti-Jesuit. There are two other things to mention, again, pretty quickly. The Index and the Inquisition. Two other major elements of the Counter-Reformation that serve the purposes of uh, and were used by the Jesuits and the Catholics in bringing about uh, re regaining ground against the Protestants. First was the Inquisition. The Inquisition originated in the late 13th century in France, uh, where they where they investigated and uh, dealt with a heretical group called the Albigensians. And then the famous Spanish Inquisition was instituted in 1480 primarily to deal with Muslims in Spain. And then in 1542, 
there was the so-called Roman Inquisition was established. Why? To get rid of Lutherans or Protestants. 1542. That's the, that's a crucial one. But always the Inquisition is established to deal with heresy. Uh, now some of the tactics used in the Inquisition are a little nerve-wracking. Uh, for example, if you were called before the Inquisition, you were presumed guilty until proven innocent. Uh, they normally had spies who would turn you in. Uh, they employed torture at times. And of course, this varied from place to place and circumstance. But uh, the Inquisition could be a terrible thing. Uh, I know, for example, in 1542, I was working, I've worked on, on Peter Martyr. And the reason he left Italy, he left in 1542 when the, the Inquisition was instituted in Rome. And he was called to appear before the Inquisition. And he was so scared of what the consequences could be that he decided, you know, his, the gig was up. You know, he might as well flee and go to where he would be safe and be able to teach what he believed. But the Inquisition struck fear in the hearts of people because they had at their disposal uh, torture and this presumption of guilt. And you had to demonstrate that you uh, were not guilty. Or if you recanted, uh, was the other thing. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.